right, and the game award for game of the year goes to... Morality is entirely subordinate to the interests of class war, and everything is moral that is necessary for the annihilation of the old exploiting social order and for uniting the proletariat. Game. All right, we are broadcasting to you live from a ship recently seized by Yemeni pirates. <laughs> what is going on? Uh, we came over here thinking these guys got to have games of the year. You know, that's got to be what they're thinking about. Um, and so the games of the year that we're going to go through are actually theirs. And if you disagree with any of them, you love Israel. <laughs> so. <laughs> coming off hot um, <laughs> right away. It's true. And people need to come to terms with the consequences <laughs> of their actions. <laughs> As I'm sure we will. When anyone important listens to this show. I, ca oh, I can't God. be held responsible for anything that I've said on a podcast that's against I, the law, I think. Listen, <laughs> officials of all kinds, you need to understand that when you begin podcasting, you enter sort of a fugue. This is a well-documented phenomenon. Uh, and what happens, it, it's not, you're not legally liable, really, for it. Anything could come out. You're in touch with ancient sort of spirits and demons. Um you have like you, the ones that <laughs> run the state of Israel. Basically, <laughs> you have a um, a plausible justification for uh, insanity just by virtue of podcasting at all. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> right. So, I want to start us off with a major upset. Um, I've been getting a lot of letters. I've been to my PO box. I've been getting uh, telegrams. A few uh, of those gay birds that come with letters. I hate those. And everyone is saying, how about that Baldur's Gate 3? They're all saying it. Uh, and I was a bit like, well, I don't know about all that. And then they showed me pictures of Carlac. And I was like, okay, well, you know, we can have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't want to be closed-minded. I'm open to debate. Um, and until recently, that was going to be one of my big picks. Because it's such a fucking well-made game in so many ways. It really, really knocks it out of the park. Except one... And we're going to talk about honorable mentions and games that didn't quite make our top three behind the paywall. Plug, plug. Um, so I can get into this more, but I, I, I'll i just say that I did not find, and I've not finished Act 3, to be fair. This game is so long. So if everything changes in, in the final 300-hour stretch, um, you know, I'm sure somebody will let me know. But my experience so far has been that the larger narrative is really uncurious about the world it's in, in a way that I find really disappointing because so the small stuff is so well-written like interactions between characters and their kind of individual arcs, I think are, are really well done. This is a good fucking game, but when you get to just kind of like, what is this thing trying to say as a text? Ah, I don't know. I think they forgot about that bit, and I think that happens in fantasy a lot, where they don't think that's something they need to do. And I think that Baldur's Gate has suffered a little bit. Again, I still think it's great, but it's suffered a bit because I've been reading uh, Dungeon Mishi, or Delicious in Dungeon, for the uh, the gaijins out there. And that's a manga that's really... It's, it's a D&D &D type setting, and it's really curious about the world it's in. 
Have you have you read this by any chance? Or I have not. Uh, no. Going to heaven. Yeah. No. Don't engage with anime. Obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. There's little things like uh. So the setting is is that like a dungeon has appeared under like the, the big city or whatever, and uh, supposedly made by a mad sorcerer. And so adventurers go down into this dungeon uh, to try to stop him, basically. And the whole like economy has sprung up around this type of thing. And something interesting in it is clerics are basically bandits who, because uh, they have like resurrection magic. So they just kind of prowl around looking for people who've gotten killed in the dungeon and then sometimes just robbing them while they're dead uh, and often rezzing them and then demanding payment. Mm-hmm. And I just think a little touch like that is so good at actually not just taking every fantasy trope as a given and saying, what would actually happen if there was like an economy in this world, you sure. know? Um, and I think the more of that I read, the more Baldur's Gate just felt like this is this is bread and butter D&D in a way that I think some people might think I'm being unfair about. But when everything else is so good, nah, you can't drop the ball like that. That's my hot take. Have you played a lot of Baldur's Gate? No, I haven't. I've watched uh, several other people play it. Um, And uh, I think, you know, based off of what you said, that, um, you know, to be a master of small worlds is one thing, but to, yeah, to fail to seek out your own ambition uh, is an entirely uh, other thing, which, you know, I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I, I, they they try to touch on like racism and stuff in ways that aren't like terrible, but nope, it's knocking stuff over in the background. Um, <laughs> that aren't terrible, but I, I just think that if you're gonna reach for that, let's get something go. Especially because, and maybe this is part of why they couldn't, because Wizards is so like dog shit about that in so many ways. Wizards of the Coast, um, mm-hmm. maybe they felt restrained by that somewhat, but I would have obviously. Perfect world, love to see more of a dialogue with the history of this this material, especially considering how kind of like queer it, it all tries to be and stuff. But anyhow. Hold on, I'm just looking around trying to figure out what the fuck she's got. Oh, that's the broom. Phenomenal. Yeah, she can have that. She can fucking <laughs> clean up after herself for once. I can drop a uh I can drop my own personal triple A hot take. Yeah, let's have it, man. Um, which is that uh the AAA game that I played the most this past year was definitely um, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Nice, nice. And uh, you could also, you know, I don't even, I don't think I have it on my long list, but it belongs mm-hmm. on there. Like it's uh, very well made. It does exactly what it's trying to do, expanding on the original. However, there's something about the pared down version of this game which is just Breath of the Wild, that I might like more. And I'm not so... for I admit, openly uh, admit that I don't have the attention span for a lot of the like engineering 101 sure, activity sure. of Tears of the Kingdom, which just kind of feels like homework and not the good kind of homework to me. Um, and constantly find myself trying to figure out ways to just kind of rig around what it's trying what the game is trying to get me to do which to the game's credit is part of the whole thing um that's something that they did in breath of the wild and that it's i think a central mechanic that they chose to expand on in the sequel um because you know it it just like it it was a, a clear direction to go in um 
but so I guess in, as I'm thinking about it in terms of personal preference, um, the way that Breath of the Wild, especially in the beginning, required your the um, the difficulty and mobility to start and the limitations, very simple and easy to overcome, but like interesting kind of survival adapting that you had to do in the various environments in that game made my favorite part of those games, which is uh, uh, filling in the map, mm. um, so fun. And that it was very, it's been fun on Tears of the Kingdom as well. But I find myself bu- bumping into all of this like, oh, look, it's a collection of objects that it wants me to put together and sit here and put together into a vehicle or whatever. And like, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to try and climb the highest thing I can climb and jump as far as I can go and hope that I land in the place that I want to go. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that I find the most interesting about the open world Zelda titles. So I guess if I'm really thinking about it, um, what has kept Tears of the Kingdom off of my list is that I find the charms of the original um, to the, it, it, what I liked about the original is not necessarily the focus of the sequel, which they scaled up by adding an underworld and an overworld. They did improve on some things. The dungeons are better um, and more inventive and creative. Uh, they made a great, they told a good story, but no unlimited bombs. Why did you get rid of unlimited <laughs> bombs? That's the only question. That's my, that's my yeah. real question. You did the greatest thing that's ever been done besides, you know, maybe adding the small jump um or the climbing like honestly the the stamina bar probably being the best addition to a Zelda game uh besides unlimited bombs and then you took you can't it away just take from away me, unlimited and now I'm bombs. walking Jesus. around and I'm going around in caves trying to find bomb flowers and I'm like what are we doing have we as a society fallen so far <laughs> yeah too many menus too much menuing mm-hmm. and I play RPGs I menu all the time but it's too much breaking up the sort of fluid action which for me again in those games is a lot of running away combat as a last resort you know no instead i'm sitting here you know attaching things to arrows and like going through a million menus and eh, (laughs) maybe that's just not for me yeah i didn't end up playing it uh because i felt kind of similarly where it's like i feel like a lot of people could have a lot of fun with this i kind of just want to replay breath of the wild like if i had more time there's a simplicity to it that it doesn't look like i would yeah. find in in tears of the kingdom um and i just want to kind of like cruise around and be like depressed um on a mountain you know <laughs> that's what's up yeah they the, they uh reduced the nietzschean quality god um, i hate when they do that uh, nintendo <laughs> Of the, of, of the original <laughs> game no respect for mountains Zero. no romantic sense of oh the world God. excellent <laughs> all right well we have condemned uh we might have said we like these games but actually this is a total condemnation and we hope that the people who made them <laughs> all perish um we've condemned some popular games uh he- thus establishing our street cred for the many pirates we want them to take us seriously as critics so folks uh, ladies and germs, <laughs> um, the first game of 2023. Don't look at when this episode was uploaded. Stop fucking stop looking at that right now, okay? Um, it's got to be Resident Evil 4 remake. Hang in there, Ashley. I'm coming for you. 
When day breaks, you two will join our covenant to share in my holy blessing. It is, let me tell you, it's good. <laughs> a lot of people, obviously we did a whole episode on this bad boy, um, so I won't talk about it too long. Uh, but I think the more time I've had sitting with it, the more I'm just really excited that Resident Evil is so fucking good these days. Like... Mm-hmm. Whenever I hear something's coming, and I am a negative Nancy about fucking remakes. I most mm-hmm. remakes are totally unnecessary. Obviously, there's the um, the remake of the first The Last of Us was already nuts, but then they're remaking the second one that came out like a few years ago, and the remake looks identical. I don't know if you've seen those screenshots, but they're like ten percent <laughs> darker, and that's mm-hmm. what changed. Like they thought maybe they could pull that off. I don't think anything is different, <laughs> uh, nor should it be because it. Last of Us 2 looks incredible. Like, yeah. Make a new game, dog. I mean, based on what I know about the working conditions at Naughty Dog, um, maybe, maybe don't, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, <laughs> but Resident Evil 4, I thought, was a really good. I think it's the best way you could remake a game like Resident Evil 4 that's so, like, beloved is to not worry too much about aping everything about the original is to give it its own personality. And I think most of the things it did differently, it did better. Um, I just, I just think it's great. Um, I think there needs to be a place. I feel like it fell away in culture a little bit. And this is also kind of when resident evil got kind of shittier is when they, they turned away from that very like two thousands kind of new metal corny horror (laughs) core kind of bullshit. Uh, and Leon just saying his stupid fucking one-liners, shooting, um, I forget his name, the priest guy in the face in the middle of one of his dumb speeches. Just <laughs> tremendous stuff. Let's go. We need we, we need this in general. It's so fucking fun. I, I could go play it right now. This is, it's so fucking good. And I also think my inclusion on this list makes me less pretentious after what I said about Baldur's Gate 3, because, like, this game's stupid, but it, it fucking rules, man. <laughs> yeah. That was always the appeal, that it took all of the things that are good about Resident Evil and dialed them up and then added a couple of, you know, and and, and changed combat in a way that, like, it all felt very maximalist yeah that it's just the kind of thing that you want from the remakes in general have been very good i'm a little surprised they've been insane the resident evil 2 remake is like everyone's fucking favorite uh, at least before this one came out i think it's so good i really like the three remake it's just bangs they're they're doing it they're fucking they're making good video games you it's it's allowed yeah we're, we're playing hits again fuck yeah man uh, that's really all I have to say about that one. We have a whole episode on it. If you want us to go into it deeper, uh, we talk about Leon's fat hog. I'm pretty sure I remember that. <laughs> so because I remember that that is admissible in court, uh, just for anyone taking notes. Speaking of games, not that we've talked about, but I think that we should. Um, and one that has a, the only choice, all my, all my choices by contrast are very pretentious. And on the one hand, it's because, um, you know, I, I I am what I am to quote my intellectual hero Popeye. Real, but Real uh, um, also because considering the year that we had last year, it was uh, um, the, what I've mostly had time for is playing games that you can play in several settings or sometimes one setting, um, and 
I, I have a lot of, you know, sort of story heavy titles on my long list, but this game, it's called Chance of Sinar. It's an indie title that I've seen covered in a few places, um, and one that has, I think, you know, a little bit of people talking about it. But um, it's not a big game by any means. It's a uh, it was developed by Room Disc, um, which is a like a three person development team in I think Toulouse in fr- they're French, and they. Um, you know, which I know, strike one. Yeah, but um, you, you got to win me back here. This is, I'm getting upset. I'm getting angry. Stay, stay okay. with me. Uh, it's getting a bit hot, you know? <laughs> Chances Sonar is a game that is, in a lot of ways, based off of the Tower of Babel story from the chapter 11 of the book of Genesis and Hebrew scripture. But it's a very inventive sort of take on the story is these like competing micro civilizations have been divided up by language and culture and they all live in this big ziggurat in this big and in this big tower goals um and you as the main character wake up in a sarcophagus so again are starting off good Mm -hmm. um and then you kind of attempt to navigate the world and learn languages from these different small civilizations it's lexicographic so they're all uh, picture and symbol based languages and you go through the story learning different words and illustrating them in a journal um, and slowly learning how to communicate with these different peoples that you meet from very like sort of re- religious sort of like pre like definitely pre-modern mm-hmm. pre-medieval even uh, early civilization religious peoples to like totalitarian seeming like warrior people there's an effete intellectual cast i fucking hate those guys if i describe <laughs> the yeah the uh, um it, honestly if i describe any more of them it gives too much away <laughs> um because <laughs> the story is very good um and that's the sort of point of the whole game is going through and learning how to potentially try and mend the you know persistent and fundamental differences between these various civilizations again language and culture is the fundamental language being the fundamental division between them it represents something really powerful the game's music is incredible it's very good um the it has this sort of cell shaded very modernist uh aesthetic that i'm fucking obsessed with like it is addictive and but it's very quiet and it's very like it it has this sort of like puzzles of language and also has other little puzzles there is there is you people who like the real fans of this podcast will know how not fond of sneaking around in a video game i am i get very bored very quickly real gabbers not the game's fault yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah the real gabbers know the uh, um, professional mer- managerial class of Agab Nation. <laughs> <laughs> Agab Nation bourgeois. That's right. Um, 
<laughs> um, no, they, uh, um, and e- even then, like this, it's a really, it's a really well-made game with a really good story. It looks beautiful and it sounds beautiful. It's definitely the most polished, um, and like self-realized independent title I played last year. Um, I really recommend it to anybody, um, but especially people who like indie games that are, it, it is story, it is story heavy, but you're not sitting around like you can, you, anytime you're in a new area, you start out not being able to read the dialogue. You have to learn and people speak in these, like the languages have different syntax too. So so sick. it's all like they pluralize words differently. So you have to learn the construction of the language as well as the vocabulary. It's simple. It's not an extremely long game, but like, you know, being in that world is, it's a very anxious world too. And there's a lot that needs to be done to make it better. Yeah. And it's a really kind of, it's a very good game. I really recommend it. Um, I, I, I so recommend it that I think we should talk about it on this program and in some sort of extended capacity because it reminds me in terms of the way that it thinks through culture and language reminds me of the uh, Forgotten City um, in a lot of it like it sort of feels from the same kind of conversation I've heard accusations the baby woke up, so she's getting kidnapped. All right, Steeler. No. Hi. Oh, you're happy. Of course she's happy. She knows it's yeah, time for yeah. gamers. It's the gamer time. That's right. This is a certified gamer mm-hmm. baby. <laughs> a certified gamer baby. That's yeah. right. In this in this house, unfortunately, that is true. She is. Uh, um. Um. Anyways. Yeah, chance, chance of snar. I I've seen people describe it as a um, Duolingo simulator, which is shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, I'll kill that owl. I don't care. I will hunt the fuck owl. Fuck that owl. We don't um, allow any kind of bird creatures on the pod. I'll take care. I'll I'll take care of the Duolingo owl in defense of Chance of Snar, which is so much so rich and complex and interesting and non-transactional and has beautiful design and yeah it's it comes with my highest my highest i cannot say that about the three titles that um (laughs) i've decided to focus on for my three favorites but it this one by far comes with the highest recommendation i think everyone should play it hell yeah i love that we're introducing the idea that the the order of the games does not necessarily mean we think you should play them more than previous ones. <laughs> no. no, that oh, in the case of the other two that I've brought, no, I don't recommend in some cases anybody play them, <laughs> but more on that. That's right. You came here for our nasty more little games. That doesn't mean that you have to expose <laughs> yourself to video games at all. Actually, ideally, do not play any video games. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, learn a trade. <laughs> learn a trade. Um, go outside. Yeah, make something with your hands. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I feel bad uh, because I think that my list this year is going to be 
one of my less a Gabby lists. Um, cause I think we do prefer interesting, smaller games a lot of the time. Uh, and yeah. especially the second half of last year for me, I was just so fucking busy that when I sat down to play video games, it was mostly like dumb shit or like multiplayer games. Um, so I've got a huge growing wish list full of games like, uh, chance of Sinar. uh, and at some point, I'll feel like I can use like my brain today for something fun and, uh, <laughs> and play them. But one game I immediately played because, holy shit, uh, Blasphemous 2. But on this ascending path of penitence, the arch confraternity awaits you. Keen listeners of the pod, uh, we did a Blasphemous episode, right? I'm pretty sure we did. We did, Keen yes. listeners, I remember things, uh, of the pod will know that I really fucking love the first Blasphemous. Um, and the second one, if you liked the first one, you're going to like the second one. That's the situation. Uh, I think that this time around, because it, it's got a lot of similar things going on thematically to the first one, but I've gotten really frustrated with the way people talk about both of these games because obviously the games are outrageously Catholic in aesthetic and themes, even like the scores full of like Spanish guitar and shit. It's so it's fucking bang and score in this one, just like the first one. Um, but I think when it comes time to be analytical with the game, people tend to really get caught up on the religious aspects of it. And like, obviously those are right there mm. to, to interact with. But when I was playing this uh, Blasphemous 2, especially, uh, I was really caught by how strongly they lean into perhaps the most Catholic theme of all, guilt. Um, <laughs> did you get to play Blasphemous 2, by the way? Not two, no. Okay. We are so good at, like, picking games the other hasn't really played. Uh, it's very funny. Oh, I, <laughs> I, I I don't think you've played either of the other two that I've brought. Excellent, um, excellent. I think we've both played yeah. my number one. Uh, in fact, I know we have, so that's that'll, that'll, be, that'll be something. Um, yeah, so guilt as this, like, driving force in this society, basically, uh, I, I think is really interesting because I think as much as it is a game that is playing with Catholic ideas, I think it's a game about history. I think it's a game about Franz Fanon's notion of every generation kind of having a task before them and the unimaginable collective guilt of just categorically failing that task by any fucking measure. To me, that's what the world of Blasphemous 2 is, is dealing with. And most most of the people you interact with are involved in this process of penitence, uh, this process of, of mm -hmm. trying to alleviate that guilt. And at, at the top of the tower, the, the last boss is the first penitent who, if I'm honest, I'm not a hundred percent sure what his plan is <laughs> uh, because some of the, the details can be kind of dense in these games, but he clearly wants to end the cycle of penance. And I think that's really interesting because the, the cycle of penance has distorted most of the characters into these fucked up little guys. Um, very kind of biblical curses have accompanied every miracle that's been bestowed upon people. In this one, there is a divine entity called the miracle. It's very uh, monkey's paw 
Uh, it grants wishes, but there's always something fucked up about it. Um, and I, I, I think that it's, it's really, it's a game that's interested in what a world looks like where people are racked with this type of divine guilt and are attempting to alleviate it with these like dangerous backhanded miracles trying to find these kind of quick fixes basically. And then that puts you in an interesting position because there's a few different endings and there's some, some very strange things you can do, but you are, you ultimately kill the first penitent who is trying to stop any more people uh, taking on the, the, the right of penance basically. And I think that's really interesting because it's implied that this guy is, has been around for quite a long time and he's seen, he's seen this non-productive approach to solving social problems, basically in a way it's really, it's maybe not surprisingly, I think it's quite, it's got a lot of teeth for religion, I think, or forms of it that offer kind of Mm -hmm. divine answers to real material problems here on earth. But I think it's also thinking a lot about how we, deal with guilt. I was talking with an an academic colleague um, and he was, he was saying something that I kind of hear a lot of liberals in universities say, which is that he feels uh, he's not a history major. He's a French, French major. So, you know, spit on him. Um, But he, uh, he, he says that he can't really engage with history because it makes him feel too guilty because of all the, you know, I live in the United Kingdom, all the fucked up things this country is does. Has done, sorry. Um, And I kind of get that notion from a lot of people where they're just, they're taking it, the the, the way they're framing history is collective guilt and not any kind of constructive way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that makes it this like hostile and, and difficult thing for them to interact with because they feel if they can just kind of keep things simple and smooth around the edges that they can feel good about, you know, the country they live in or whatever. I think you've brought up something really interesting in that, like, and I think at least the first game, the first game did this really well and exercising a criticality of its, the subject matter and aesthetic that it draws from so much. It describes what I think is really something that a lot of people don't understand. That's really important about religion. It's that like, you know, to the Catholics credit, and I think people who are critical of Catholicism understand this, or and probably used to be, or live in uh, countries dominated by Catholicism, mm-hmm. understand that to Catholicism's credit, it is an inheritor. It is one of the main contem- and still contemporary inheritors of the though a language for describing the world that is so in what that in its internal scope is so totalizing but in to be completely honest extra in its external scope was totalizing Mm -hmm. for an incredible amount of human history considering the like like after christianity became dominant it became the way that people saw and talked about the world in huge parts of the world for generations and generations and so being able to like fluency in those matters has always been very important to me. Not, and on the one hand, it's reflective of my own worldview because I grew up very religious. And so you, you gay, like you lose a lot of stuff, you know, in that environment, but you also gain 
an understanding of the way that other people see things like history. Um, And it helps, you know, history on the one hand in our sort of like po- in his in his, not to get too into meta historiography and academic no, we're doing it. Let's fucking in go. our sort of like guns po- out <laughs> good in our sort of post micro historical moment and i mean and natalie zeman davis just passed away like not to put literally any disrespect on like the way that she was able to talk about the the you know very very worlds that feel very foreign to us using the micro historical is really important but in our sort of like post-cultural turn, and this had the cultural term is in the 1980s. Yeah. And we're like Lynn Hunt wrote the new cultural history or edited the new cultural history in 1980, I think, on the nose, or 1982 or something. And so we it's been such a long time that we've been in this particular way of seeing historiography that I'm afraid sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the like our sense of scale and the way that we, you know interpret like that 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 we can be indebted too heavily to the micro political without at the very least you know I, i'm fine with an indebt and being indebted primarily to the micro political mm-hmm. but you have to be my rule is that you have to be an insurrectionist <laughs> like that <laughs> like you can you, like you you that can be your political perspective and language but it has to be insurrectionary mm-hmm. otherwise it it feels philosophically incomplete um and doesn't really understand history and its production and like that sort of a thing. Yeah. So that's my shot at academic Foucaultians. Get fucking um, wrecked. And in nerds. defense <laughs> in in defense of some of the other Foucaultians, the political Foucaultians. Because like on, there's on the one hand, there's the like the 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 proliferation of the microhistorical is like a, an, an understanding of this, of human subjects and that I find really interesting. But on the other hand, it is also a sometimes justification for exercises in academic tedium that keep, you know, history as this sort of discrete, like subject fundamental to the internal logics of the academy rather than you know, something that shapes the way that humans see the world. It just becomes this kind of like exercise and then like collegiate thing rather than like, you know, I, God, <laughs> <laughs> like not to like, not like a big other God, but like as a, you know, a, a way of seeing so intimate to the production and evolution of human societies that it is taken for granted without anyone even trying. So I don't know. Yeah. Again, there's your, I just made five people in academic history. Very angry. That's right. And uh, to the five of you <laughs> uh, subscribe to the Patreon <laughs> who are definitely listening. Yeah. If you, if you want to respond, patreon.com slash I leave um, stickers <laughs> with the QR codes that are the SoundCloud link um, for our podcast all around university campuses in the country. We have purely the most annoying fan base uh, possible. I made sure of it. Uh, and therefore, anything we do against them is justified. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I... I think I think that there's a, there's even more sort of meat on this, but I don't want to take too much time up on it. I think I will push for a blasphemous two episode in the future, um, because I I think this is a really interesting kind of way of approaching it, and 
it's I, I I'm just so glad that I'm I'm not in like my teenage new atheist phase anymore because it's such a fucking boring lens. Um and it comes attached to this this very uh like positivist approach to everything that renders you totally unable to comprehend mm. a lot of pretty important things. Cause if if there's not a fucking you know, there's not a fucking UN study of something, it can't be real. I think it it, it really does feed you into just like liberalism. Um, and uh, it's cringe. So over to you. What's your next game? Okay. After rambling on about a game I haven't played, that's <laughs> all right. My second choice is a game called Grand Pooh World Three. Uh huh. Go go, Kazo Rangers! Go go, Kazo Rangers! Yeah, so Grand Pooh World. Are you fam- are you familiar with this with this series? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So good. the The background on it is like okay. So it's the third game in the title. The Grand Pooh World is a series of uh, Kaizo Super Mario ROM hacks. Fuck yes. Um, they were developed all by the same a, a well-known mario guy uh his name is Bar- barbarous king he's uh aka dk barbarian aka barbarian depending on which title mm-hmm. um whichever name he was using for which he's, he's a very big twitch streamer and big in the mario community um he just had uh also just had a baby a two babies actually they had twins. there are some who call him um, the gentleman's luigi <laughs> There are. <laughs> the gentleman's Luigi. Yeah, that's my contribution. Um, Go on. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Um, no notes. Yeah, so and Grand Pooh World is named, with its silly name, it's named after another very well-known Mario guy and literal Red Bull-sponsored athlete, Grand Pooh Bear. Um, these games are big uh, in speedrunning communities, and they have been featured at the big games done quick marathons, uh, one of which is going on right now, actually. Um, don't look at the date on the episode. Don't look. Um, <laughs> um, so anyways, these are, they're Kaizo ROM hacks. So they are, Kaizo is kind of a misnomer now. It's a, Kaizo's original intent was like, within the context of like a, some people call them rage games or whatever, a game that's intentionally meant to be uh, tricky and absurdly difficult, specifically for the humor of people watching someone try and play it. Um, it's comically bad in its difficulty. Grand Pooh World has those elements, but it's a found. Fa- so the foundational game for the hack is Super Mario World. So there is this, for those who aren't, initiated there's this thing called uh smw central super mario world central which is where a lot of these rom hacks are posted i'm not an expert in this world i've played some of the bigger rom hacks um and grand Pooh world is in the grand Pooh world three i'll just speak to that one is in a kind of a category of its own it kind of embarrasses a lot of the other ones that i've seen in terms of scale um and in terms of the way that it uses the kaizo rom hack formula to make something it's barely a mario game anymore at it, it feels it's a sort of 
pastiche, almost postmodern text that is extremely referential in terms of the Mario community itself, but also in gaming in general by incorporating different sprites and the scores. I could talk forever about the, it's always chiptune versions of songs from other games. And also sometimes, you know, the, the Rick Ashley troll, never going to give you up. That song, song. does actually kind of pop. Or, though, so it, he's Rick Ashley. The um, videos that went viral of him covering Smith's songs um, were well-deserved. He sounded amazing. Um, the uh, uh, the game is, they're very long. There's, they use the, su- it's a, they use the Super Mario World format and there's like, there's secret exits all over the place. Uh, for, for Grand Poo World 3, the current, I think, world record, which is held by the person the game's named after, which is funny. That's um, right. Uh, is about an hour. This is the all exits um, speed run is about an hour and 20 something minutes or whatever. So it's a long game. Uh, the way that he uses all of the assets from across Mario ROM hacking Nintendo for, for those who really don't know. So um, super Mario bros wonder came out another great game automatically goes on my honorable mentions it's just really well made they have this really neat new power up that's uh you shoot a bubble and you can jump on top of the bubble yeah that was posted that was developed by rom hackers years ago oh hell yeah nintendo has been stealing stuff from the rom they allow the rom hacking community to exist basically because they get ideas from them all the time uh it's also legal. I feel like um, Bethesda does a similar thing with their modding community. Probably, yeah. And I, I'm sure that there's some like sort of limitations that they could place on it. ROM hacking is legal um, in the United States. There's a Supreme Court case and everything. Um, but I'm sure there's, there's something that if Nintendo wanted to do something, they could probably try in some capacity. And but it's it's clearly like the level of creativity in this community in those communities is really it's it's pretty it's cheesy, but it's pretty remarkable. People are able to use very sort of like simple ideas to make these incredibly complex and long and interesting and unique games from all from existing assets. And it's just like. It's really Grand Prix World Three is an enormous success. I have played it. I have not beaten it because I, it, I can beat these games over very very long periods of time because I am a, a three out of ten on the Kaizo Mario scale. I'm on the scale, <laughs> um, but I'm like maybe a three out of ten. So I'm okay, and I've played, um, I've played through most of all of these games, and uh, this one is just kind of like. It's in another world. The airship from Final Fantasy VI is in it. Um, this, it, like, I mean, you know, it, it has all of the cultural touch po- points of ROM hacks. You know, it difficulty plus style, um, reference, but also creativity. All of these sort of like competing ideas that end up working together and making something unique out of existing assets. I think it's a really it's one of the most interesting things that happens in video games is ROM hacking. Um, and yeah, I think that's great. It's on my game of the year list, but I recommend you go watch someone who's really, really good at Mario play it. Um, because ROM getting into those games is difficult. We should do some episodes on 
like ROM hacks. I'm realizing we've never done that. That would be awesome. Like, I want to talk about the weird rabbit hole of like Pokemon ROM hacks. Oh yeah, I'm playing a a a, a Pokemon roguelike dungeon kind of yeah, crawler Emerald Rogue, thing right? on my phone. Yeah. yeah, Emerald. I'm playing Emerald Rogue on my phone right now. <laughs> Yeah, fuck yeah. Not not while we're recording. <laughs> okay, I was going to say fucking impressive talking when you're doing that. Um, yeah, no, shit like that. Um, I've been, I you know, obviously I, I grew up, I am of the age where I, being a kid, had a Game Boy Color and fucking red version and shit. Uh, and I always loved these games, even though a lot of them are kind of dog shit. But ROM hacks, mamma mia, let's fucking go. And a lot of them are shit too, which is even more fun because the way they're shit is so fun. (laughs) There's a lot of like grim, edgy ones, and they're all fucking hilarious. There are like there's dead people in it or whatever. Those ones are really funny. Pokemon are gonna fucking die. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Pokemon, but scary. But like for like, it's like it's like actually scary. Fuck. No, it rocks. Uh, I love just garbage uh but also some of them are really cool and i feel like not to get into it too much but i I think it's interesting what things become consistent like the pokemon rom hacking community has certain like agreed on things they're like yeah the game just did that mechanically wrong we're just gonna all fix that the same way and stuff (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. very funny to me (laughs) yeah giving you run the run feature earlier introducing the physical uh, special split in rom hacks of older games um yeah very funny uh, and also in the spirit of Pokemon, because the whole competitive scene is like self-managed, the whole like tier system, mm-hmm. because it's not a balanced, like competitive game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's very fun. Yeah, we should do that. We should absolutely Hell do yeah. that. All right. My last and chronologically highest in a descending list uh, game of the year is fucking Armored Core 6, baby. What is up? We have an episode on this that we actually recorded before, but will be released after because obviously we were trying to get out to international waters in time. It's a whole scheduling thing. Um, and as we discussed prior, Fugue State, no idea what I said. So if I if I reiterate any points that you then hear me say again on the next episode, I sincerely apologize. I, I, I'm kind of a... a, a I don't know if I said on the pod either, but I'm I'm recovering from like fucked up vaccines. I'm a, a wild animal right now. <laughs> We've edited out so many untoward comments about Albanians already. <laughs> uh, I get like that, you know, it just comes out of me. <laughs> I don't know if I've said this on the pod, but I used to work with a Greek guy who hated Albanians so much, and I think about him way too much. <laughs> I'll. I love the old. You're in in the United States. I I finally live in the part of the country to where there are uh, white people with European identity, legitimate European identities, because they're you know they're from immigrant families or whatever, and they all are very racist <laughs> towards a very specific group. And it's one of my favorite. Yeah, things that's what it's like about white in like people. central fucking Europe and shit. It really gets like that. Uh, Serbs. Fucking, oh, Serbs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, this Greek guy I worked with here in England was talking about how much he hated Albanians for going to Greece and taking all the jobs. And I was like, you know, you're, uh, you're not from here. And neither am I, in fact. What the fuck are we talking about right now, dog? Yeah, what, like, why are we talking about <laughs> I love that guy. He was like five feet tall, too. He fucking ruled. He loved Jedi mind tricks. Oh, awesome. Um, <laughs> All right, Armored Core 6. Uh, this game, I'm so in love with this fucking game. Um, I've got a, a, a reasonable history with the Armored Core series. I haven't played like the really, really old ones, but uh, I've played like 4 and 4 Answer and stuff. Um, and this game definitely, you can feel the influence of other From games on it. Like some YouTubers early on were like, it's kind of, it's like Dark Souls. Like, no, it's, it's not. except it has the fucking Sekiro stagger mechanic, which is so weird. And I kind of didn't like it at first because it limits your builds a bit. Yeah. um, Because you need to break their poise and then you can do like a burst of damage. So you need a tool that does that and a tool that does that. Um, And I thought that was kind of limiting, but I also, I kind of like limitations in games. I think that a healthy amount of limitation. Yeah just poses interesting challenges. So I'm not, it's not the end of the world for them to introduce this mechanic that does this thing. And I did really warm up to it, especially as they buffed guns that were not the Zimmerman shotgun a little while after it came out. <laughs> Cause that shit was fucking mm. absurd. Um, but it like a lot of armored core games really, uh, is exploring in really hammy, heavy handed ways. Kind of this like space capitalist dystopia. You are, generally a cynical Merc who is working for corporations who, you know, you might be fighting against them in the next mission and something really interesting unfolds in subsequent playthroughs. Cause it's one, it's one of those games. It's one of those, one of those games where you, you can't just beat it once. It's kind of like a, a Lay's chip. I don't know how many years it's been since that was their uh, slogan. Um, probably a lot. Cut that. um uh yeah you the there's a strong kind of ecological through line in this game it's really interesting and the rubicon liberation front and an kind of an avatar of coral itself which is the the substance everyone's fighting over on rubicon uh they start to kind of push and pull you towards the, these more interesting sort of political ends as the game unfolds. And I, I kind of think it does a lot without ever really, you know, it never sits you down and gives you a lecture about the economy, um, like kind of lesser games that try to engage with these ideas. It always feels like it's really organically just like, these are what these factions are doing and they're acting in a way that tells you everything you need to know about what they are. I feel like there are, um, I think, like log entries that I don't read because I will never read them in any game. So I won't hold it against the game if they're bad because I didn't read them. Um, So it might be in there, but I feel like it's left kind of vague in the game itself about what actually the exact nature of this prior disaster where overexploitation of coral created this this huge disaster, basically. Um, And that's just kind of a a thing that looms in the background while you're making decisions uh, and it fucking rules. It's also just so good. It's just so fucking fun. Uh, again, I'm playing a lot of games this year that are just fucking just fun. You can think about this one a lot if you want to, but also you can put a big laser sword on your robot and fucking <laughs> cut people in half. That's that's what gender is about. 
That's the thing. Uh, there's like a cool Lance thing. It's very Garen Lagan. That's that's also a gender. Um, what, so we we obviously we talked about this a bit uh, on the episode dedicated to it. But what do you have to say about Big Armored Core Six, the big man? Well, it's it's actually one that you've suggested that I've played. It's great. It's kind of everything that you wanted that you wanted it to be. It has a big dumb story, but as you dig into it, it is clearly articulating very interesting ideas about how, you know, you know, about the world that we live in, which is everything that you want from a, from soft title. They all, they literally all do that. It's another, you know, it's like dark. (laughs) It's really the dark souls of armored core. (laughs) 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 It it really is like, it really is like that. They tell, uh, they tell an interesting story through these sort of like peripheral elements, because at the center of it all, you can grab a big giant gun and shoot it um and yeah big robot go boom is very it's very fun the movement as with every armored core game takes some a a little bit of getting used to but it feels so like you're it's so rewarding when you under when you learn its internal mechanics and it's just very fun and i think yeah, uh, not a popular opinion, everyone. Uh, but uh, Armor Chord Six is good. Uh, you heard it. Yeah, it's, here. it's a very normie pick, but it's so fucking good. The normies are right. Um, from yes. just keeps on banging them out. Uh, one day they will do something. They'll put out a bad game, and I'll, I will really relish tearing it apart because I know how good they can be. But uh, so far, no luck. I just have to enjoy really well-made art like a fucking asshole you know (laughs) (laughs) there's an idea in this game this is just kind of a a loose idea that i've been bouncing around in my head for a long time um especially lately because i've been thinking a lot about what people especially in political struggle kind of owe each other um and this ties into my favorite thing from wolfenstein 2 the new colossus which is the idea of inheriting something very physically from someone who came before you that uh, enables you to to do what you're trying to do. And in the case of BJ Blazkowicz, it would be the like power suit mm. from um, I'm so bad at remembering the names of characters, but the character who wore the power suit who dies like right at the spoilers, uh, right at the beginning of uh, Wolfenstein two. Um and he kind of talks to her through the suit just because he's monologuing in his own head because he's a you know big budget video game character. They do that. It's not Donkey St. James tier. Uh, and what he has to say is actually interesting, so I don't mind. But um, <laughs> but he's he's very conscious that he is he's on he's on borrowed, you know, he's flying on borrowed wings to take a direct quote from Armored Corps. Uh, because in Armored Core 6, you steal the ID of a fallen mech at the beginning of the game. And it turns out to be a raven who it seems like there's... Uh, again, this doesn't... They don't go into this too in-depth in the game itself. But there's clearly some society or network out there around this title. Mm-hmm. This like inherited title of raven, basically. Um, and some people come to kind of challenge you and 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 see that you deserve to carry it throughout the game. Um, and I, I think that it carries with it that same, less obviously 
emotionally connected to the the plot itself, but I think it carries with it the same notion of kind of you inherently owe a debt because these things were were left for you or, or granted to you that you are using to to try to fulfill some kind of political end, I suppose. Damn, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just I agree. <laughs> I think I just think I agree. Nice. There's that language of the world that is just work. It's that's just working. They have this internal understanding of what they're doing in a way that I find very good. Yeah. I I feel like it it's kind of where I'm coming at this game thematically right now is not so unlike Blasphemous 2. It's just I'm just this is an idea I'm increasingly seeing in in so many texts and I think that it is something that people in general are thinking about on some level a lot right now. Uh and I can't imagine why. <laughs> so, um to not at all contrast um that very good um and well-liked game <laughs> um uh my final entry for my game of the year is um perhaps controversial for some but hear me out um it's a game called only up Which is uh, in the theme of games that feel impossible to finish. Sometimes it is a um, a, a difficult game or a, B, a kind of a B game that was developed by a single developer who we still, as far as I can tell, uh, don't know anything about really. Um, that uh, uh, it is a game you play a girl who is climbing a, t- a giant tower of garbage and the j- goal is to get to the very top of the giant tower of garbage. Oh, um, she's a YouTuber. Okay. It, <laughs> exactly. Um, to be the queen of garbage. <laughs> um, no, you, it is this uh, sort of game long ascension that went very, very viral over the summer um, where everyone was playing it and getting incredibly mad because when you fall, you fall Sometimes the entire way to the bottom. Wow, millennials uh, the, can't deal with consequences for their actions. You know, no, that because of the true. lattes, <laughs> specifically because of the lattes, yeah. um, our, our our shared entitlement via uh, beverages, little <laughs> treats. Um, uh, only up was like, I don't think by any measure of, I, I don't I, I don't I don't even want to go down that road because I don't care how people measure. Game, what games being good or not um what i do care about is an interesting articulation of culture or culture's articulation of some social problem or some sort of internal commentary that uh conveys something interesting mm-hmm. or eludes you know popular understanding of what a game is supposed to be um only up is in a lot of ways the inheritor to or like sort of a, a a marked evolution on the you know terrible very challenging game that was getting over it um i am a getting over it something of a getting over it apologist and not in that like 
it's not actually difficult or, you know, it's not actually trying to upset you or make you angry. It's definitely trying to do yeah. all of those things. It's your punishment for being a gamer. But, yeah, <laughs> for the, but then the, the, um, sort of how it keeps drawing you in because the last thing he says in the game is that he loves you. Um, which <laughs> I find very interesting, but it has this like principle that requires us to consider the ways that ambition in these sort of contexts can be obliterating. I think Bennett Foddy described, I was rereading the full monologue. There's a transcript of the full monologue of getting over it online, which I think is really the fact that you can transcribe entire monologues and understand kind of where the game is coming from, which there's also an, a monologue in Only Up, albeit that is much less coherent. Um, the uh, He refers to B games as rough assemblages of found objects. And if anyone listening is familiar with my non-video game related work, or sometimes video game related work, um, that's something I'm very interested in, are rough assemblages of found objects almost exactly <laughs> as such. Um, in a video that I made a while back that features a much more popular and better YouTube person called Kay and Skittles, I talked about Katamari Damashi as this, as, as a like cosmic utterances of the accumulation of modernity a la Benjamin in this, like we live in this post, everything is a history is a disaster and a large accumulation of garbage. Mm -hmm. And that there's something to be had by peeking through the um, giant pile of garbage and finding and, and constructing assemblages of found objects for in, in an attempt to sort of, you know, politicize and weaponize history unto good ends, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think the sort of psychic reverberations of this idea are present in weird B games like only up or like getting over it because they don't reduce difficulty in the game to the register of virtue. It's not about like their difficulty is the thing that everyone talks about, but they're not really about that. They're about this kind of um, almost like unconscious um, articulation of modernity of or contemporary whatever period we're in that i think is like more evident than any sort of polished like produced thing um it's like encountering some very strange novel um written on a whim and picked up by someone who found it interesting and then it's the way that like weird music it, it's like or like, uh, what do they uh, what do they call it? Like the shags and uh, um, outsider music, I think. Mm. Um, or a kind of outside, yeah, outsider music and a kind of outsider art. Daniel Johnston is another big sort of like outsider musician um, that people reference. This feels like it feels like outsider art to me because of its like quote-unquote lack of sophistication and thus reliance on like assemblage and expression and like i and I, I don't find that to be limiting in its subjectivity i find it to be enlightening in and challenging 
Um, and again, difficulty is not seen as this kind of like virtuous thing of overcoming, although you do get literally, like in getting over it, you literally get over it. But part of that getting over it is this sort of like recognition of our most self-destructive tendencies as just like people, um, as, to call it obliterative, to be annoying. Um, but like that there's these, there's this tendency in behavior that I think we understandably socially try and um, sort of suppress, you know, drives in the Freudian sense, but, you know, it doesn't have to be the Freudian sense that, that just in general, like we are always socializing ourselves and being socialized. And so we try and repress this kind of like, you know, almost manic. So there's a, <laughs> I just, it just made me think of it. Actually, I, got to interview him twice jason babak mohageg wrote books about mania and this um idea that like the language of compulsion has the capacity they're called omnicide and omnicide too by the way they're very good books um they have this there's this sort of like interesting cosmic language in our tendency toward these sort of like kinds of madness um, and I think, you know, these games are definitely a kind of madness, but in the most like interesting and telling way, um, if getting over it is very like, you know, it, it has this, you know, it approaches this from kind of from like the perspective of analytic philosophy, but you also play Diogenes, <laughs> um, or like an imagination, like the guy in the pot is supposed to be an imagination of Diogenes. Only Up is like this weird, ambitious thing, a flash in the pan kind of cultural moment um, that managed to find its way into people's screens. Um, I found it very interesting. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that anyone play it. In fact, it's been delisted off of Steam, so I don't know if you can, but there are a million terrible clones um, they're all lying to you. They are not the original yeah. game. So you probably just have to go find it. Um, but like there's, there's a million different clones only up, only multiplayer up. And then there's someone who took the name only up because it's not on steam anymore and made their own version of the game and are trying to make money from it. It's like, do you know why it's not on steam? The creator took it down huh. and said that it was just stressful. Um, Yeah. They just, they just found it stressful and they didn't want to deal with it anymore. And they wanted to make a different game, I guess. Again, I don't know. I also don't know anything about the creator of this game. I still, I, th I still don't think we know anything about them. That's interesting. I wonder what uh, was stressful. I guess I assume once, you know, the game's out there, you can just fucking, unless you're actively patching it or whatever, well, you can just fucking take off and collect paychecks. They had to take it down at one point. I forgot about this point. They had to take it down at one point because there were copyrighted assets that were used and also, oh. I think, sounds from Final Fantasy VII in Minecraft. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I see why that would be stressful. Uh, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think that was part of it. But then they, they took it down and then it got posted again. Um, and I don't know. I think they were also being criticized because they had a relationship with someone who made NFTs, which... I like they weren't selling me NFTs. I don't care. Um, I mean, you know, if they were hot, what do you what do you meant to do? I can, I can <laughs> buy a couple apes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's my uh, obnoxious pick. I think um, that's a wonderful pick. And if you want to hear, 
Oh, well, thank I, you. I watched German uh, if you want. I thought, uh, I'll never, I'll never touch that, actually. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to. That's another beautiful thing about it, is that it's a game that you don't have to Fuck. play. It's maybe better if you don't. It's the perfect game. Yeah, if you want to hear slightly more traditional picks, um, you're going to have to go behind the paywall for that, I'm Get afraid. behind That's there. where my all of the rest of them are. That's right. We've got all of the spiciest opinions. Is Asterian racist? Um, that's the main one. <laughs> so you, can- <laughs> I, I think it'd be fun to start like uh, baiting people uh, with just lies about what's going to be behind the paywall. Mm-hmm. I think that I think everyone would appreciate that a whole lot. We're actually gonna we're gonna really we're gonna figure out the uh, the ongoing violence in Gaza, and we're gonna solve it. In a way that doesn't upset anyone in power. Just check it out. It's going to be crazy. You've never seen this one easy trick before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The geopolitical uh, solution everyone's been looking for is Fortnite, which also has its own version of Only Up. That's right. That has more play. Oh, I forgot to mention that part. It has more players than the original game did. Now everyone's just playing it in Fortnite. That- I wish I didn't know that one. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't pick and choose. I just share the info. This is the news. I'm a That's journalist. That's true. This is what we, what we do is journalism on this podcast, and you just saw that in action. So you're welcome. Mm-hmm. We're just like, actually, never mind. <laughs> All right, we're going behind the paywall. Uh, you can find my stuff. Uh, there's going to be a big fat link tree link. With all my stuff. My Twitter's on there. It's K and Skittles on YouTube as well. How about you, Kyle? Uh, Labor Kyle on stuff. YouTube, I, I, I'll be up I'll be up again there in the future eventually. I promise. You just Google them. Busy. Bing. Bing this boy. It'd be fun. Bing. Yeah. <laughs> Yahoo. <laughs> Yahoo only, actually. Alright, we're going behind the paywall. Goodbye. All gamers are bastards. Mamma mia.